Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder. This week my guest is Bram Stoker award-winning author Gwendolyn Keist. So Gwendolyn is the author of The Rust Maidens, Reluctant Immortals, and Her Smile Will Untether the Universe, Pretty Mary's All in a Row, The Inventions of Ghosts, and Boneset and Feathers. Her short fiction and nonfiction have appeared in outlets including Lit Hub, Nightmare, Tor Nightfire, Titan Books, Vestarian, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and The Dark, among others. She's a Lambda Literary Award winner, and her fiction has also received the This Is Horror Award for Novel of the Year, as well as nominations for the Premios Kelvin and Ignotus Awards. Originally from Ohio, she now resides in an abandoned horse farm outside of Pittsburgh with her husband, their calico cat, and not nearly enough ghosts. You can also find her online at Facebook and Instagram. Of course, I've got Gwendolyn coming on today to talk about her upcoming novel, The Haunting of Velcrid, which is coming out on March 5th. I have talked to Gwendolyn before. Uh, you can go back and listen to the Bathtub of Blood episode on my other podcast, The Weirdest Thing. That's from August 19th of 2022. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And of course, don't forget to check out the YouTube show Nighttime Logic, which is hosted by a friend of the pod, Daniel Brom. He's the author of the collection The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales and the novel The Serpent Shadow from Cemetery Dance. The series focuses on the strange, weird, and wonderful side of dark fiction through readings and discussions with diverse authors from around the world. The next episode is going to be on February 27th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it features Dan Franklin, author of the Cemetery Dance novel The Eater of the Gods and the newly released These Things Linger. You can find Daniel on YouTube, uh, just look for his name, Daniel Brom, or at Daniel Brom 7838 and I'm going to go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes as well. And as always, don't forget to go to whatever streaming platform you're using if you're enjoying the show. Give a five-star rating, leave a review, tell your friends, go to social media, spread the word, and here we go with Gwendolyn Keist. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, and so I should mention, so this is actually your first time on this podcast. Yes. But you did come on, it was like a year and a half ago, you came on as a guest on my other podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, The Weirdest Mm -hmm. Thing, that Mm -hmm. was, uh, let's see, I've got it up in front of me, it was August of 2022. Yeah, for Reluctant Immortals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was for talking about Reluctant Immortals. The episode's called Bathtub of Blood. And uh, I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes because we did spend a lot of time talking about like your earlier work and your influences and and stuff like that. And actually, that episode, along with when I talked to um, Sarah Tantlinger and Rebecca Rowland, is kind of what inspired me to start this podcast. Oh, cool! Yeah, I was like, you know what, I like talking to horror people, so I think I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> we're a good yeah (laughs) um so today we're going to be talking about your new book the haunting of velcro which coming which is coming out on march 5th but if you'll indulge me i'd actually like to start off talking about a couple of your short uh recent short stories yeah absolutely one of them just because i like it and i want to talk about it and then the other one because i kind of feel like it read a little bit almost like a companion piece to the haunting of elkwood so okay i'm excited yeah so the first um is it's from american cannibal edited by our friend and friend of the pod rebecca roland uh this came out in march of last year the story is the hungry wives of bleak street yeah so I guess 
how would you describe the story? Because I think it's it was one of the most interesting takes on the subject of cannibalism that I thought. I mean, I thought the entire the entire anthology is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, it was one of my favorite stories in the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, so really like 1950s housewives in like mm. suburban America are actually slicing off pieces of their skin and like feeding it to their families because their families are just kind of like literally devouring them whole until like they start kind of questioning like, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Do we have to do this? And that's sort of the crux of the story. I love it was, um, you know, it read very kind of allegorical and kind of surreal, but yeah. like you have just enough of the visceral, like you describe, you know, at one point someone's shoulder and the raw skin of her shoulder where it's like, you know, you don't let us off the hook and that it's like a pure allegory. It's like, no, they're actually... Mm -hmm slicing literally slicing pieces of themselves <laughs> off <Yeah. laughs> um where where did i mean i i mean i think the allegory kind of speaks for itself but just how did i guess how did um your inclusion in that anthology come about and where did the specific idea kind mm -hmm. of spark for you I'm trying to think i think rebecca invited me to submit a story and like I realized right away I don't think I'd ever done cannibalism before and that was like something that I'm always excited when I can do a kind of trope or a subject in horror that I don't think I've ever done before because I've done you know I've done a lot of ghost stories I've done you know a lot of vampire stories there's you know I've even done a slasher story or two so it's always fun when there's something like oh I've never done cannibalism and I love Rebecca she's fantastic so I was mm -hmm. like yes I definitely want to work with her I would take any opportunity she could give me any subject and I would probably be like yes yes mm -hmm. and so from there I just like I wanted to do something that was grotesque but beautiful that's mm -hmm. a lot of what I like to kind of juxtapose and mm -hmm. so for me it was like okay cannibalism my mind immediately goes to really ugly things you know abattoirs and slaughterhouses and I'm like what mm -hmm. if I go the exact opposite direction and make it so it's very you know very well coiffed and all pulled together and like what would that look like and so that was sort of I kind of came on like, okay, to me, like the antithesis of like a slaughterhouse is like a Stepford wife or a 1950s mm -hmm. housewife is kind of like very perfectly pulled together kind of look that really beneath the surface, of course, is a lie, you know, it's right. not real. And so kind of playing on that. So I feel like that that's really where it came from. I'm trying to remember, like, I think I was thinking of like some of Douglas Sirk's old 1950s Technicolor mm. movies, because yeah. I love those movies so much. I love that entire like era of those like women's films, they used to call them like melodramas that like really are kind of horror movies, because they're right. all about like all the heaven allows. And... Yes, yeah. that's like my favorite one. But like, he had several and it's like, they're scary when you think about mm -hmm. it because everything everybody is closed in and there's all these rules and you have to follow them and if you don't follow them you're going to be ostracized and that's like your only outlet in this world and so it's like I, a lot of people always want to be like oh the house scion days of the 1950s and i'm like they scare me like that mm -hmm. the idea that we have of the 1950s scares me obviously not everything was like that anyways there's a lot of things that if you look in the 1950s there was still a lot of activism going on we just don't kind of think right. about that in the collective culture and so yeah, so I think that's kind of like what what I where I was coming from when I when I wrote that one. That's interesting that that connection to like the Douglas Sirk, you know, they call them, you know, the the dismissive term is like the women's weepies. 
you know? Women's weebies. I don't know if I've ever heard that, but I kind of love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and there's a real, I, I feel like there's almost a real direct line from those kind of films to like, almost gothic fiction you know mm-hmm. women's yeah. sensation fiction from like yeah. the victorian yeah. era and like yeah, very much very and, much like i yeah. criterion does some like gothic movies almost every month they like release mm-hmm. new ones and some of like their gothic movies that came out like that were technicolor there were a couple of them and like they remind me of douglas cirque movies because they're like very over the top and it's like instead of like suburbia it's like castles and things like that mm-hmm. or like ancestral estates but it's still a very similar idea well so, and, it's, yeah. and it's very much about the, the that kind of sense of repression Mm-hmm. And 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 playing with or not playing with, but really examining these ideas around what would you say like women's quote unquote hysteria? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and I think you find you know pieces of fiction like uh, the yellow wallpaper would be like a bridge between these, yes. and I think so. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I could see like the Hungry Wives of Bleak Street being another kind of bridge between these Ooh, two yeah. genres. You know, I like that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really love the story. And one thing I loved about it, another thing, and this is something I want to get to when we get into The Haunting of Velkwood, but it's something I've noticed in your work in general. And I think it really, The Hungry Rides of Bleak Street, I really was thinking about this because of the subject matter. There's an element of restraint in your writing. Hmm. Um, because, you know, when you talk about, okay, we're going to do uh, an anthology about cannibalism and just the subject of cannibalism you know if, if i if i was to sit down and write a cannibal story my instinct would be to go splatter punk good instinct though <laughs> you know i think that anthology does have some splattery you know pretty splattery stories in there and there's obviously there's nothing wrong with that but i like that you kind of really leaned the other mm-hmm. direction you decided to you know kind of push away from that what is that a conscious choice or is that more just kind of a general instinct for you? Depends. I feel like, you know, some things maybe not as restrained, but with that one, I I did want to do something I hadn't seen done before. So for me, like sometimes that mm-hmm. ends up being kind of this more quieter horror or something like that, because maybe I haven't seen that done in, in this way before, but yeah, I mean, maybe because I remember one of my stories, um, A New Mother's Guide to Raising an Abomination is what it was called. It was in a Cronenberg themed mm. anthology and it ended up getting um, accepted for like an extreme horror anthology. And I was really surprised, even though like there's an apocalypse of these little girls like killing like basically the whole world, <laughs> but it wasn't written about in an over the top kind of way. So I was like, whoa, like, mm-hmm. is this really extreme horror? And then I like thought about it. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty extreme. It's like apocalyptic extreme. And there are, there are descriptions of like what they do and everything. It's just to me, like you said, sometimes like it's, it's more of like a lyrical kind of way of approaching horror. And so it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily like splatterpunk, although I like splatterpunk, you know, that's, I love all horror. All Mm -hmm. horror is great. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, I thought to to take the direction that you did with a cannibal story, I mean, another story from the same anthology, and I'm forgetting the name of it, um, but it's Holly Ray Garcia's story. Uh, and I talked to her about it a little bit. It's another one where the cannibal theme, it's like you get, it's really only until you get towards the end of the story that you're like, oh yeah, no, the, they ate the babies and that. Like, <laughs> but it's so kind of like hinted at, it's yeah. implied, you know, and 
and i like i like the idea that like there's room for that in in the subject matter like cannibalism which like i said you know my instinct i think would have been to just go like let's let's really like get into the viscera of it you know (laughs) and then the other story and this one is the one that i think like to me as i was reading the haunting of velkwood it brought me back to this story and so i went back and reread in fact, just this morning, reread this story because I thought, oh, these almost read like companion pieces. So this is um, Here Hearth Heartbeat. It's from uh, Forbidden Magic, the cellar door issue number two. Wow. Okay. And uh, just uh, real quickly, I'm going to be a little bit um, self-serving and mention that I also have a story in this uh, anthology. Uh, my story, My Church is Black, is also in there. But your story, I felt like it was really kind of dealing with some similar themes that you you explore in The Haunting of Velkwood. So if you could talk about that story. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. So like, it's about a woman who goes back to her town after like 20 years, I think it is, uh, for her... Is it 25? Okay, I couldn't remember if it was 20 or 25. You know better because you just read it. I feel bad. But yeah, so she goes back (laughs) for a class reunion and there's like this, yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but there's like this friend that she's sort of forgotten. And Mm -hmm. as she gets there, it's like all of these things from the past start kind of catching up with her. That is an interesting connection because when you first said it, I'm like, okay, like going back to a town where you haven't been for a while, I can see that that connection. Mm -hmm. But okay, I very much see where you're going with this. Yes, that is an interesting. I always think it's fun as a writer when other people can kind of see the, the themes you're doing that maybe are so instinctual for you that like sometimes I'll be like oh yeah definitely totally on Mm -hmm. purpose but then other times I'm like oh yeah like that that illuminates something about like you know something in my psyche that I keep returning Mm -hmm. to (laughs) yeah well there was you know there's something about you know and and we'll we'll get to it you know haunting of Velkwood it's this this neighborhood that has been abandoned that has been haunted and then here hearth heartbeat it's almost like the friend that has been abandoned the friend is what has been haunted you know the friend has been and it's a little bit ambiguous you know what Mm -hmm. happened to the friend there's clearly a supernatural aspect there something happened between these friends that seems to deal with witchcraft but but again it's implied Mm -hmm. um and i think we can leave it kind of open-ended but uh there's some unresolved business that needs to be kind of completed with this friendship yeah and one thing that i i liked about that story and this is something and we talked about this on when i had you on the other podcast is you have a tendency with a lot of your your work to you like i think you you your instinct is to want to end on uh a hopeful note rather than a downbeat so many of us as horror writers and i include myself in this is we're such just miserable pessimists in our writing that we always just end in such a bleak everything is terrible kind of place and you very often i wouldn't say always but very often like to end in a place of hope um and just talk a little bit more i know we talked about this before but i find that just interesting because i think that is something that really sets you apart from so many of us that 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 is your instinct what what do you what do you think drives that it is most of the time I have a a handful of stories that don't I remember there was one recently that that got published in in an anthology that was a pretty grim ending I was like whoa I was not in a good mindset when I wrote Mm -hmm. that clearly yeah 
A lot of times it comes down to the idea that my characters often start unbalanced. And mm -hmm. so I feel like, you know, if your characters come into a story and the, the world is balanced, then having it by the end be unbalanced or mm -hmm. bad in some way actually feels more natural. But so many of my characters kind of come into the story sort of broken or mm -hmm. just yeah. really missing something. That's and true. So I feel like at the end, if they're still missing that, then it's almost like, why did we even come along for this ride? Like, I think sometimes because of the way the balance of the story is, it just ends up being natural to be like, okay, here's the arc. The arc started where they weren't good at doing well. And now, you know, it's better. And sometimes it's not even necessarily better. Sometimes, you know, a lot of people like there's apocalypses at the end of it, but they're always happy apocalypses. Like I have like these happy <laughs> apocalypses. Like the people who are left are like, this is cool. I'm fine with this. The world was terrible. You know, I kind of call them like dark victory endings. So it's like, usually there's still something bad that's happened. It's not just like everything's good and everybody's happily mm -hmm. ever after. It's just usually there's like, so, like you said, some kind of hope, some kind of idea of these characters enduring in some way that that is positive. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I mean, that's it's interesting because that's so the reverse of, like you said, the way I think a lot of horror fiction works, mm -hmm. where it's, you know, we, we start with characters in the sort of normal world, and then it's all yeah. about kind of mm -hmm. fucking everything up for them. Yeah. And, and it's one thing I think, you know, we talked about this with Reluctant Immortals before, is I think, you know, one thing you seem very interested in is exploring kind of the after effects of trauma. Yes. And so you you start with characters who have who are kind of coming into a story, like you said, kind of broken in some way, or or they're dealing with the they're already dealing with the aftermath of something. I'm thinking, you know, this is obviously the case in the haunting of Elkwood. This is the case with um Reluctant Immortals. Mm -hmm. Um, this is the case with the Rust Maidens. Yes. And yeah. then, you know, so it's it's kind of the reverse of so much horror fiction, is it's the the horror that they experience through the course of the novels actually kind of about really watching them sort of deal with the trauma and kind of repair themselves mm -hmm. in some ways which yeah. is which really is kind of different than i think what a lot of horror fiction mm -hmm. does and it does make it more hopeful i think i think yeah. a lot of horror fiction is really about experiencing the trauma and your yes. your work is about kind of about reflecting on or recovering from maybe the trauma. yeah yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. I, I think that's because so often in stories, I'm so curious in horror, like, how are you going to deal with that? Because I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, as bad as a traumatic event is, sometimes the aftermath can be worse because it's mm -hmm. like, we go into fight or flight during a traumatic event. And, you know, it, then it's the having to live with it that is that can be so difficult. And there's not a lot of kind of how-tos in fiction as to how do you deal with it? How do you kind of cope with that trauma? And so to me, that's, I'm always like, you know, what does happen after the end of The Exorcist? You know, how does Regan possibly, how do mm -hmm. the, does Regan and Chris possibly go on? How how do you keep moving forward? You know, how do you move forward at, at the end of Poltergeist? I know these movies have sequels and the sequels aren't usually as good. And maybe you could argue that's because that's less interesting, but I would say it's usually just because sequels just aren't usually as good. Right. But yeah, that's something I always think about is like, how do you, how do you deal with it? And where do you go from there? And mm. what does that say about you? Like, in terms of how you cope, you know, and yeah, so I feel like that that's just a thing that I think always fascinated me. I mean, it makes, it almost makes me think of like Carol Clover with her, you know, talking about the final girl. Yeah. You know, there's, 
we have this kind of, you know, the final girl is kind of, the idea of the final girl is kind of entered pop culture at this point. Yeah. But if you go back to her Men, Women, and Chainsaws, where she really talks about the final girl as a much more complicated idea where she's not really a triumphant figure. Yeah. Because when you get into the sequels, she's usually very traumatized mm-hmm. and she's often killed off in the sequel. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's like, it's usually not, it doesn't actually work out that well for her. Yeah. And in many of the cases. Yeah. I mean, that is yeah. really true. Like Laurie Strode gets killed in at least one movie mm-hmm. and Nancy gets killed off in Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the reason I don't like, I mean, spoiler alert for this very old movie. I don't like dream warriors. I know a mm-hmm. lot of people are big dream warriors fans and I get why like it's appealing, but Nancy mm-hmm. getting killed off just irritates me because it's also just, she would have been smarter than that. We've seen her be smarter than that. Mm-hmm. It just seemed really like, mm, I don't mm-hmm. buy that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can yeah. definitely see that. Yeah. And then the final girl on the first Friday the 13th gets killed at the beginning of the second Friday the 13th. Yeah, right? and in a pretty, yeah, like, like, dumb way. <laughs> dumb way, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I, I like the first Friday the 13th a lot, but I, I didn't really like that mm-hmm. sequel at all because of that. I'm just like, it's so off-putting. Just well, don't bring back. You can tell kind of in that one, they just didn't know what to do with her, you know? Mm-hmm. They, so they were like, well, just go off. I mean, it was... They didn't want to deal with the idea of the trauma. And it seems like, you know, but the, this is something that you're seeing popping up more and more in, in horror fiction now that I think about it with, like, your work. I'm even thinking of, like, some of Grady Hendrix's work with, like, um, uh, his Final Girl Support Group, which mm-hmm. is obviously all about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this very subject. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's interesting to me to see how it's like it, we're finally getting to the point in the genre where we're kind of taking some of these issues seriously mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i think um it's something i i do really appreciate in in your work that i think it's important because you know, i'm i i am as a writer pretty bleak <laughs> in my own work and you know it just i am what i am you know it is what nothing it wrong is with that. nothing wrong with that but i do appreciate that there are other voices out there and and it is actually one of my favorite things about something of your work or i'd say most of your work is that you really do kind of explore the idea that there is hope in horror mm-hmm. i think that's a good transition so let's go ahead and talk about the haunting of elkwood all right. Um, which I have to say, so I think when we talked before, and I apologize, my allergies are driving me crazy right now. So Same. I um, it's just, it's insane. But so when we talked before, I, you know, uh, we were talking about Reluctant Immortals, but we did talk a little bit about the Rust Maidens. And I think I told you that when I read The Rust Maidens, I don't even really understand why, but I had this visceral connection to the Rust Maidens. That like, I mean, the characters are nothing like me. The situation is nothing like my life. And yet I just plugged into it in this like just primal way that I can't even mm-hmm. quite understand. And then when I read The Haunting of Elkwood, I had the exact same experience. Oh, okay. So, I, I, and again, I don't really know why, but it's, it's, and it does seem to me that there is, there's something about the rest mains and the hunting of Velquid that they seem like mm-hmm. there's some sort of connection between the two. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I agree. And it, it's, it's interesting because plot wise, they're very, very different, but I feel mm-hmm. like some of it's thematic. Some of it's just like the feel of this like small neighborhood and mm-hmm. how insulated it is and how that can trap people. And so yeah, obviously the Rust Mains were trapped in a very different way than the ghosts were trapped. But yeah, right. I would definitely agree with that. Out of everything I've written 
so far. I would say those two things are probably yeah, they're like they're, to the closest. There's a there's like a some sort of spiritual connection between them. Yeah. 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 So go ahead and I guess before we dive in into the thematics and stuff, just kind of give us like the rundown of like what the book's about. Just yeah. for people who haven't read it yet. Yeah. So the haunting of Velkwood uh follows Talitha Velkwood, whose neighborhood where she grew up has vanished it vanished 20 years ago and it basically like just turned into a ghost neighborhood you can kind of see it and kind of not see it people can't go into it except for her and two other people who have escaped from it like the night before it disappeared but she has tried not to have anything to do with it and the other two one of them one of her friends brett has had absolutely nothing to do with it the other friend grace did go back but then when you know got you know left and inexplicably very quickly Mm -hmm. and so now it's 20 years later and talitha finally is ready to face the ghosts of her past because she wants to go back and find out what happened to her little sister sophie and she's essentially recruited by this like Mm-hmm. group of paranormal investigators um, yes. who have a grant <laughs> yes and it's um i mean there's an almost sci-fi element to it yeah yeah i'd agree with that yeah. the like you know the that it's it's almost i mean this is like a this is a very imperfect comparison but it almost reminded me of what what was the marvel show that had uh the scarlet witch <laughs> yeah wandavision yeah Wanda, like there was yeah. almost an element that reminded me of wandavision in that like there's this like weird force that has taken over this neighborhood mm-hmm. and has kind of blocked everyone else out and yeah. there's the people on the outside trying to figure out how to like pinprick it to get in yeah but whereas wandavision obviously is like a weird sci-fi marvel thing this is a very spooky like just the imagery of being on the outside of this ghost neighborhood that is just kind of flickering in and out of existence yeah Yeah. is very spooky it's very uh eerie and then the the image of the the picture that she and i don't think this is a spoiler because this is in the first couple chapters but she sees a picture that they take of the neighborhood from the outside and she sees a ghostly image that she thinks is her sister her younger sister from the inside what kind of is the catalyst for her going home that and the fact that she does she hasn't built much of a life for herself on the outside so i think well i guess before i kind of just like because i have a lot of thematic thoughts and questions about it but I want to know just where, what was, you know, I mean, it's the quote, I always hate to kind of be the guy who asked the question all writers hate, you know, the where do you get your ideas question, but I'm really curious, you know, where did this come from? And like, what was kind of the spark? Because it, it's such a unique approach to the idea of a haunting and ghosts. Mm. Yeah, so I... So the really funny thing is I had promised myself I wasn't going to write another novel that was a period piece because Mm -hmm. The Rust Maidens was based in 1980 and 2008, which I didn't Mm -hmm. write it in 2008. So both timelines were in the past. And then I wrote Bone Set and Feathers, which was like a fairy tale. And then I wrote Reluctant Immortals, which was in 1967, California. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not writing another (laughs) period piece. I'm not doing it. 
And then like, I kept having this draw of like, oh, but I really want to. Mm -hmm. And then I was looking at this uh, photography book called Suburbia by this photographer called Bill Owens. And it's these really interesting pictures of suburbia. They're all black and white. Mm -hmm. And I, I I think I knew it before I started looking into like bought it or maybe I found out after I can't remember, but it inspired both the Virgin Suicides, Sofia Coppola's film mm -hmm. and Edward right. Scissorhands. So the neighborhoods in those two movies are based on the neighborhood in this book, Suburbia. Okay. And I thought, oh, how cool would it be to write about this neighborhood, a neighborhood like this, like my version of this. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, but I can't do another other period piece and I'm like well what if just the neighborhood is is in the past and I'm right. like oh the whole neighborhood could be a ghost and I'm like that is like so cheating on the idea of like don't write a period piece but that was kind of like where it started I remember being like I've never really seen a haunted neighborhood necessarily like you yeah. see haunted ghost towns and you see haunted houses but like this neighborhood that just kind of got pulled out that seemed like something I'd never really seen done so I was like okay like this sounds like something that like I can do that I that hasn't necessarily been done to death so that was sort of the the catalyst for it yeah I, I like the idea that it's not like a neighborhood that you can go to that's full of ghosts yeah it's mm -hmm. that the neighborhood itself is a ghost mm -hmm. like yeah you know, yeah. it, it's it's an actual geographical anomaly that yeah. it yeah. has been. And that that's where the almost science fictional mm -hmm. aspect, because it starts to feel like, is this is this some sort of, is it because been sucked into some weird parallel dimension or, mm -hmm. you know. But of course, what I love about it and that, and I love that you resisted the temptation that too many writers fall into the, the temptation to try to over explain. Ah, I give yeah. the rational, like, here's what it is in the end, you know, here's the, you know, here's the wrap it up in a nice little bow. Like that we get some like hints of like, well, there's part of an explanation and yeah. mm -hmm. part of what's going on, but we never really get the full picture that it, because that's not what it's about. It's not about yes. figuring out mm -hmm. the why, you yeah. know, there's yeah. so much more deeper things going on. Like that's, that ends up being essentially irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, that that's sort of how I, I see it. And also, like, I understand the people who really like explanations don't like it if you don't explain things. But at the same time, I'm kind of of the opinion, you can never really fully explain ghosts in a way mm -hmm. that makes sense. Like, it's not something right. that we can scientifically explain. Whether, whether anybody out there believes in ghosts or not, it's definitely mm -hmm. not something we have a scientific explanation for. So as a writer, anything you're going to put out there is going to be able to very easily poke holes through, very easily be like, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. Right. And so I'm always like, give just enough to sort of have the idea of what's created this, but not yeah. to the extent of like, Here's A, B, and C. Yeah, and you do give us some plausible like directions we can look at, but mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. never a there's never a like direct causal like here's here's the scientific equation of what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's like my my beef with modern zombie movies is it's always a virus. Like yeah, you yeah. know, and I love you know go back to Dawn of the Dead when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. That's enough. Yeah. That's all I need. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, as so, so, okay. So there's where you kind of came up with like the spark of the idea, mm -hmm. but where you take it in terms of, you know, exploring these family dynamics and this idea of stasis, you know, the characters caught in stasis, mm -hmm. this town caught in stasis. It got me thinking just about the idea of the Gothic 
-hmm. And, you know, like, I think about gothic fiction, gothic aesthetic, gothic culture. We talk about gothic, you know, just goth, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so much of how we use that term is it's just like, it's a purely aesthetic term Mm -hmm. so often. But it strikes me that you've really thought through the idea you know, this and this is something that I think goes through a lot of your work, all the way back to the West Mains, of like what the gothic really means in terms of this idea of stasis and decay mm-hmm. and putting it in this modern American kind of rust belt context yeah. because mm-hmm. there's the gothic of, you know, old England with the Moors and the Crumbling Castle. Yeah. And there's the gothic of like, I mean, we've talked about, you know, you're from the Cleveland area. I have cleveland background in my family you know there's the gothic of you know cleveland and detroit and these crumbling rust belt cities that have Mm -hmm. been sort of semi-abandoned and you know the the people stuck in these places without opportunity and you know and i think you know that just comes through so powerfully as 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 a major theme in the book of of you know there's being stuck in a haunted neighborhood that has literally trapped you and then there's just Mm -hmm. being stuck in a life yes that has trapped you you know yes yeah and and to me, like, you know, I feel like the being trapped in a life is so scary. It's so stagnation mm-hmm. frightens me, like the inability right. to be able to move forward is one of the things that scares me the most. And, you know, I'm, I can ruminate a lot. So it's not like I don't do this. That's why it scares me so much. I think it's because, you know, I think, I think anybody with, with trauma or anybody with anxiety or depression kind of knows what that's like to feel trapped within yourself in some way. And then obviously, like you said, in places like Cleveland or Detroit, Detroit and the Rust Belt, you know, the lack of opportunity just keeps you trapped even more in Mm -hmm. in so many instances. So it's like, you know, that kind of existential horror of just how scary living can be. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, and even, you know, I'm in New Mexico, which is obviously very different, but, uh, you know, we have some similar problems here. You know, it's a poor state. There's not a lot of opportunities here. And there's a lot of just a feeling, you know, like you can't see a future. yes you Mm -hmm. and I you know I teach at a community college and I've had this conversation with students and like Mm -hmm. you know they they take my film classes and they're just you know and I try to really encourage them to like see like where you know this you know whether it's like whether they pursue a career in film or not you know uh, Mm -hmm. where any Mm -hmm. sort of degree or education or anything can take them and for some of them they just they've it's like the the idea has never occurred to them you yeah. know, because mm-hmm. it's it's never been introduced to them. So it's like you have one, and I, I'm trying to talk about it a little bit because I don't want to spoil anything with the book. But you have one character in particular who's her circumstances with her family are particularly grand, like in the yeah. before the neighborhood is sucked into the yes. vortex yes. of hauntedness. Mm-hmm. Her circumstances with her family are particularly grim. And then uh, we see the, you know, the expectations of everyone else being piled upon her. Yeah. Of like who they think she is. Yeah. And her choices being pulled away by other people. Yes. And the abuse that she's, that's inflicted upon her from other people. And just her choices being winnowed down to nothing, you know? Yeah. And it's just, you know, and it's like, that's the true haunting of the story, you know? And that's what 
is you know so powerful is using this supernatural uh story to really get into the real haunting of people's lives is the way we've sort of taken away people's sense of agency yes absolutely absolutely very well said very well said unfortunately well said right because Mm -hmm. it is it is frightening how much we take away people's agency and you know it happens on government levels systemic levels but it can even happen within families and relationships Mm -hmm. you know we we do as human beings so often have that desire to control for whatever reason, you know, maybe out of narcissism or maybe just out of the idea that we feel like we're out of control. And so the thought is, okay, if I can control who's around me, then I feel more in control. And so it's, there's so many different levels and reasons why these things happen. But at the end of the day, like you said, you know, people lose their ability to choose a different life or choose a path mm-hmm. for themselves. Yeah. Or no, it could even be out of like thinking we know better, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or even like, I mean, I even think of, and again, trying to like a not spoil anything, but there's uh, a character who simply doesn't want another character to leave because she just, she misses her. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And it's like that simple. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's, it's not malicious. It's yeah. not. And yet you're holding this person back. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's what the that's what the book really got me thinking about so yeah but all of this said <laughs> i don't want i don't want people to think that this is like this grim slog of a book because like it's also like i, I essentially read the book in one sitting like it okay. it was just a page turner okay it it's very i thought it was very spooky all the way through i thought you've got some really scary imagery i think you know the stuff of going back into the neighborhood and how you know it's this again i don't want to spell anything but it like it looks one way and then things start to kind of shift and crumble and you know mm-hmm. how did you think about crafting the the kind of the the interior like the the sort of surreal interior logic of the neighborhood itself Ooh. I like that question. Yeah, so I've always loved areas like geographical areas like Twin Peaks, for example. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of this town that's so weird and all these weird things going on within it. And so, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about those types of places where there's, you know, just this geographical location that almost feels, you know, like Twin Peaks almost doesn't exist in reality, right? Like it doesn't really feel like it's our reality, but it is our reality. And I kind of like that juxtaposition that it's supposed to be our reality, but it's a totally different reality at the same time. So I was thinking a lot about that, about trying to keep that balance of making it feel like this neighborhood that you can recognize But then there's weird things happening that like is constantly pushing you off balance. And some of those things were happening even before it was a ghost. And then some of the things are happening because it's a ghostly neighborhood. Right. And kind of following the main character, Talitha, as she navigates that, seeing it through her eyes, because she obviously knows what's new and what's not new and can kind of like be that guide through this place. Yeah. I I think the Lynchian comparison is really apt because it, it does have that. There's elements that do feel very, you know, it's easy to say Twin Peaks, but actually what jumps to my mind is Blue Velvet. Okay, yeah. All, you know, that, yeah. that kind of almost cookie cutter mm-hmm. neighborhood feel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you like scratch the service and the Beatles in the, you know, literally coming up from the ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think because I have other questions, but I like I want to be careful because I don't want to spoil anything. Like there's a lot of questions I could ask, but I'm afraid they'd all be spoilers. <laughs> we could always like put a like a, a mark in the in the episode and be like, don't listen any further if you don't want to hear spoilers. <laughs> well, I'm afraid because then I do that and people like are gonna inevitably spoil it for themselves anyway. <laughs> Well, I guess okay. We'll we'll do a couple like yeah. Uh, from this point forward, like I'll put I'll put a marker because I do have a couple questions that I'm, I'm yes. sort of dying to know the answer to. Uh, that would they're not necessarily super plot heavy spoilers, but but they are things that I think people would be okay. better off not knowing. Okay, we do get into some spoiler territory here. So if you want to go into the novel cold and not know anything as far as plot or character revelations, please jump forward in the podcast to about 47 minutes and 50 seconds. That's five zero seconds. And uh, you can hear our conversation about the picnic at Hanging Rock. So I specifically would like to know a little bit more about the relationship between Brett and Talitha. Okay. Because okay. it is essentially a romance. You know, it does yes. develop into a romance. Yes. Like, how, how did you want to approach, you know, the, the kind of the permeability between, you know, they start off as friends mm-hmm. and this, this kind of fraught teenage romance that then mm-hmm. obviously Talitha's mother's homophobia kind of tears them apart. Yeah. The abuse from Brett's stepfather, obviously, also is a factor in tearing them apart. You know, I know that there's there's an issue when people talk about with, like, queer romance stories that, you know, they talk about the whole idea of, like, the tragedy porn issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is obviously not the way the the romance goes towards the end. Again, it ends in kind of a hopeful note. But how did you want to like balance those elements of like again hope, but also show the the kind of trauma, particularly of of a queer romance of this time period? Yeah, and like you said, it is a balance because I didn't want it to just be like, oh, it's just tragic because that is overdone. Though I also feel like if people want to do tragic queer stories, I feel like you know you mm-hmm. have you have a right to do that. Yeah, you know. And, but I I did want to balance that and kind of show a lot of the sweet moments between them as they were growing up and then also kind of see them start to rekindle that because they've been apart for so long at this juncture in, in the book. And so to be able to kind of put those two parts together was like really important to me and trying to make it, you know, when you're a queer writer, right? Because I'm bi and the characters mm-hmm. are, are bi, you know, they both have relationships with, with male characters as well before the story has started although i mean if we're doing spoilers like talitha kind of almost gets together with jack so yeah. like a little that little thing so wanting to represent it in a way that is honest and not again like doesn't just feel kind of shoehorned in or doesn't just feel like oh it's you know kind of playing on these tropes or anything so kind of just you know I think just using your best judgment in the moment as an author and mileage may vary no matter what you do there's going to be somebody who's like I don't like that and it's like Mm -hmm. that's cool like it's your it's your right not to like it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think again what I often do is think what do I want to read you know what is not in the world that I want to read and I kind I really don't see a lot of bi characters that are clearly coded as as bi characters and then also kind of seeing them deal with that trauma of growing up in like the 90s because like the 90s were not very not friendly 
queer friendly. I mean, there were yeah. worse times for for queer people, but it, it was not good in the 90s. Whoa. And so we've we've improved in some ways and not in others. It's always interesting. Progress is always like a kind of jacket line. Like, you know, right. there's so many things that we've improved on. And then, you know, there's so many things that we have a long way to go. But yeah. I remember one out queer couple in my high school in the 90s and they were not well treated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, people talk about, oh, the 90s was this like sea change because we had Will and Grace and Ellen and stuff. I'm like, uh, yeah, but I mean, it hadn't trickled down to like small town America. Yes. You know? I mean, and in some and ways, like, I think it still hasn't entirely trickled down to small town America, but it's better. It's better. I mean, now it's at the point that no matter where you live in America, you can get married, you know? And so I think that, you know, that is one of the big ones. I don't want to say more than anything. There's been other really important things that that have happened, but that that's a big one that, you know, you've got to deal with in small towns, whether you want to or not. Yeah. And I I did like that they were coded as bisexual because Mm -hmm. I think that is, like you said, that is something that is underrepresented. It is. In, in fiction, yeah. is that I never got the sense, you know, like Talitha is very clearly genuinely attracted to Jack. Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. not that like she's attracted to Jack because she's trying to avoid her attraction to Brett. Like, yeah. No, she's yeah. genuinely attracted to Jack, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I also like the fact that like you never turned Jack into, mm. it would have been easy to turn Jack into like, sort of a bad guy or like he's exploiting her or yeah like no yeah. he's he's sort of a genuine guy in and of himself and it's like well that could have maybe also been a good relationship you know so it's like you see yeah. like there's a genuine choice she could have made either way mm-hmm. and it, you're not judging her either way you know yeah but it's yeah. like but brett is clearly who she sort of really wants with and like yeah but i really thought like the way you handled the balance yeah because you kind of set it up early on and again we're in spoiler territory now so i will definitely put a big like red flag before all of this. <laughs> but you set it up early on where we think it's brett who pushed talitha away mm. early on mm. and then it becomes very clear over time no it's talitha who pushed brett away mm-hmm. and then yeah. we realize why and yeah. it's because essentially talitha was trying to protect brett yeah at least at first that's why yeah yeah um, and then after the neighborhood disappeared it was just they they got was, torn apart over that and over right. the loss and over the guilt of all of it so exactly yeah. um but you know the you know understanding really how kind of awful talitha's mother was but in a way that again feels very human like again like not that she's like a cartoon character villain but like mm-hmm. That's the way a lot of parents were at that time, you know? Yeah. And like, and then what was going on with Brett's stepfather and like, I mean, the the most horrifying thing that happened in the entire novel, it's not supernatural, is Talitha's mother saying like, I'll tell your stepfather. Yeah. When she catches them. Yep. That, right. you know, that was the moment where I felt my, you know, stomach drop into my shoes, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and no, I'm glad we were able to talk about this a little bit because it was like I I don't want to that that's the most powerful stuff in the novel to me and it, and then it's the way you're able to explore that stuff through this like supernatural you know the the using the supernatural framework as a way into these like deeper because also a lot of it is about you know I would say there's a theme of compartmentalization yeah 
the the neighborhood has been pushed away it's compartmental you know the government is ignoring the problem right yeah yeah. yeah we don't know what happened here so we're just putting up some pylons and saying don't go there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the same way like talitha is ignoring the brett problem you know yes. of like mm-hmm. you know here's this relationship that i have like let go fallow and here's this mm-hmm. friend that i wasn't able to protect yeah I, you know yeah and like all you know the way these things are mirrored i thought it was just really masterfully done so um thank you yeah i really loved it thank you. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, that's that's all I really wanted to cover in terms of the spoilers. All right. Should we go ahead and talk about Picnic at Hanging Rock? Heck yeah, that sounds great. So this was your recommendation. I can definitely see how this is an influence. I have loved this movie for a while. I hadn't watched it in a while, but I just rewatched it last night. Yeah. Um, so talk about what it is about this movie when when did you discover this movie and what it is that resonated with you and kind of influenced your work and your outlook yeah so probably a little less than 10 years ago but around 10 years ago i'd say nine to ten years ago is when i i first discovered it i don't know how i hadn't come across it before but it was one of those movies that i just like kind of suddenly found online somebody was talking about it and i loved the the stills of it, the visual aspect of it, even from that. So I'm like, okay, I'll watch this. And I I love the fact that it centers women's experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that it's very weird. It doesn't have a lot of explanation. You don't really ever find out yeah. why any of this has happened. I, and, and it's very beautiful. It's I love that it's very consistently called a horror movie because it is, but it's not, it's not blood and guts. It's very lyrical. It's very beautiful. It's got that great like flute music and it's, you know, it's very earthy and yeah, it just is such an interesting horror movie to me. And it kind of like opened up my mind a little bit more about what could be horror and what's included in the horror genre. Cause I've always been like, bring everything. I always get mad when people are like, Jaws isn't horror. I'm like, it's horror. Don't you take <laughs> away our movie. But like, this is like, so the type of movie that I feel like a lot of people would be like, that's not horror, but it does seem to pretty consistently be categorized as horror, which makes me very happy because I very much think that it is. I think it's absolutely a horror film. In fact, one thing I was thinking watching it this time, I don't think I've ever had this thought before, and I'm curious what you think of this, is you because know, I think of myself a lot of times like as kind of a cosmic horror writer. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a lot of what I'm drawn to. But so much of cosmic horror, and like, you know, I do, I'm definitely influenced by Lovecraft, but obviously Lovecraft is very problematic, you know, as very we cool. all know. And so, like, I'm always looking for cosmic horror that is not, like, got the shadow of Lovecraft hanging all over. Yes, yes. And I felt like watching this, I was like, oh, this is kind of, like, non-Lovecraftian cosmic horror. Cosmic horror, horror. yeah. I would agree with that. I'm very much agree with that. Like, it's got a real cosmic horror feel to it that feels like it's coming from a totally different cultural context. Yeah, yeah. you know with a very different um thematic context mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and yet it's dealing with a lot of the same cosmicism questions yeah. that he does but from kind of a very yeah. different angle yeah. um, but i think it's absolutely a horror movie. i think yeah. it's terrifying it's it's like the shot of them when they finally start walking into the crevice and edith is screaming don't go in there don't go in there is yeah like, yeah terrifying <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh you know, one thing you know, we t- we've talked about this before, and I th- we've kind of touched on it a little bit today. But like, 
a lot of your work is about groups of women and like yes yeah uh kind of i know we talked about this when we talked when you came on uh the weirdest thing before is you know how um you're kind of interested in spreading these like sort of self-made communities of women mm-hmm. and you know i think this is clearly a theme in the haunting of elkwood clearly a theme in the mm-hmm. west is this something like when you look at something like picnic at hanging rock do you feel like this was also an influence that you drew from this movie yeah I, I think so I like the idea of of these kind of like you said communities of women and that we explore that experience and what's going on there and the richness of that world because so often we don't get to see a lot of female characters interacting with each other you know it's often you get one female character or two female characters so to have a big group of them is mm-hmm. is interesting to see the dynamics play out and the types of stories that we have yeah and we should say for people who haven't seen it i guess give it like a quick plot uh yeah like how do you explain it so it's like the early 1900s i think right i mean it's i think it's actually set i'm just trying to remember from the opening crawl i think it's like 1900 yeah i think so and it's set in where is it set is it australia yeah it's australia okay that's what i thought but I'm like, suddenly, like, it's it doesn't feel like it's anywhere, right? Like, it feels right. like, yes, it's Australia, but it's nowhere at the same time. It's like nowhere mm-hmm. on earth. It's almost this, like, fantasy place. Right. But it's this, it's this boarding, ha- boarding school for girls. And on Valentine's Day, they take the girls out. Most of the girls, they, they, they ostracize, like, one of them. Mm-hmm. And they take most of the girls out for this picnic. And... A bunch of them fall asleep and a few of the girls walk up into this rock, this rock formation, and they just disappear. And the Mm -hmm. movie is about kind of dealing, again, dealing with the aftermath. This is, this actually Mm -hmm. goes back to that. This is like, we see the trauma in this, but it's mostly the aftermath. I would say they disappear in the first half. I don't even think it's the midpoint. If it is, it's at the midpoint and then... Yeah. At least the second half is dealing with, you know, the consequences and what happens because these girls just vanish. I mean, I think it's in the first third that they disappear. That's my instinct, too. Yeah. I've never looked at it, but it, it's fairly early on because, like, Miranda's presence in particular just <laughs> looms over the movie. But she's right. in it so little. And her interaction with Sarah, which is such an important relationship. Right. But we see it so little. They're barely together. And yet you feel the weight of that loss throughout the entire mm-hmm. thing. And I, I find that so interesting that there's so little built in there. And yet so much at the same time. Yeah. And and that and, and that the, the presence of the way the loss of Miranda looms over Sarah Mm-hmm. Almost reminds me of um the Rust Main. I'm forgetting the character's name. Mm-hmm. But um who what's your what's your main character's name in the Rust Main? Oh Phoebe. 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 And then her best friend and cousin, who's one of the Rust. Jacqueline, men. yes. Jacqueline. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the way that the loss of that relationship sort of looms over Phoebe's life almost mm-hmm. feels like similar to me in some ways. Yeah. That yeah. you know the trauma of this person that you've just put so much mm-hmm. focus on and they're just gone yeah and you yeah. can't there's no way to explain it mm-hmm. in that sense of almost like abandonment you know yeah yeah um, and like yeah. why was i left behind yeah mm-hmm. and it's made even worse in um picnic and hanging rock because um sarah's an orphan so yes he's already ostracized yeah know? yeah Mm-hmm. and the you know it's directed by peter weir who's you know he went on to do 
you know, maybe it's like the year of living dangerously. And then I think he did like Master and Commander, you know, these yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, all yeah. these big Hollywood movies. But like yeah. he started off as this like real weird kind of um Australian kind of new wave director. Yeah. His, his movie after this was The Last Wave. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. No. It's yeah. real weird. I would definitely check that out. It's Richard okay. Cameron. It's this oh, kind wow. of weird, like surreal apocalyptic thriller. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the way he, you know, builds up to their disappearance with like his low angle shots of yes. the rock. Yes. And you just feel this something building and then using the, the pan flutes. Yeah, I know those flutes are amazing. I love them so much. They're so beautiful and eerie. It's great. Yeah, you just feel like it's almost this like pagan ritual that's happening. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah. it's very it's it's just it's very evocative and it's very like I can see why people would be like, oh, it's not a horror movie because it's like it's all like very like beautifully lit and you mm-hmm. know feels again like a Douglas Sirk movie or something yeah 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 but very beautiful it absolutely i think it absolutely is a horror movie because it's it really is terrifying it's the juxtaposition of the that kind of diaphanous beautiful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know gossamer kind of look and then what's actually happening yes yes diaphanous is such a good word for it i almost said that a minute ago because it is it's just so beautiful and so pretty it almost looks like a ballet or something but it's like this is very scary what is happening and very inexplicable you mentioned um the virgin suicides i think um is that because i know that this movie i think was an influence on sofia coppola for that so is the virgin suicides also like a yeah yeah absolutely i love the book too i think the book is really great but i actually it is one of the times i just love the movie more because i think the book is more a male gaze on the girls whereas sofia coppola really brought us closer to the girls and and even Mm. though they're still kind of unknowable in a way we get to know them a little bit better and we get to kind of a little bit more of their inner life and so but i i actually think they're both good and a lot of times only one or the other is good so i film or or uh books i i think they're both good but definitely the movie i think about the movie a lot and like the color palette and the way it's lit very much again yeah. like picnic and hanging rock the kind of diaphanous look and everything and so yeah yeah that is definitely something something i think about and definitely an influence just a neighborhood with these girls that are everything looks okay from the outside it seems like these girls should be very happy right. And on the inside, things are just rotted out and very, very bad and very toxic. And we never really yeah. get the ex- the full explanation as to what was going on in the Lisbon household. But clearly things were not good. I mean, we get some like some things from the mother and how controlling she was and the enabler father. But a lot of times we don't get the full picture as to exactly what happened. So it's like, again, kind of piecing together that puzzle. Yeah, it's another kind of modern day gothic sort of you know mm-hmm. and that one it, you know whereas like in uh the haunting of velkwood you have the visual gothic of the mm-hmm. decaying town and and mm-hmm. the neighborhood you don't really have the visuals in in the virgin suicides or even in the picnic at hanging rock mm-hmm. but you have the sense of internal rot you yes know? yes um internal Absolutely. decay because like yeah. a picnic of hanging rock you definitely have the sense of the decay within the the culture of this boarding school that you start to see as it kind of falls apart 
mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. after yeah. the girls disappear you know? yeah you realize it's kind of a house of cards you know yeah which is interesting and another thing that just you know back to the whole cosmic thing that really struck me about picnic at hanging rock was you know because again i'm from new mexico and you know we have rock formations like that here oh yeah and that we have parts of the state, you know, like um, if you've ever been up around the Four Corners region, yeah, which is, I'd love to though. Yeah, like if you ever make it out here, like go up around Ship Rock, which is kind of the Navajo Nation area. It's up in what's called the Four Corners. It's you know where New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona mm-hmm. all come together, and it's just it's an area where you do feel like that boundary between worlds is getting a little thin you know yeah. it's just yeah. you feel you feel that there mm-hmm. and and i feel like picnic and hanging rock just captures that feel of like the thinning of reality yeah you know? and that's yeah. where i got kind of that cosmic horror feel kind of comes in yeah yeah so yeah, i was very pleased to get a chance to because you had also recommended like prince of darkness which i love but um i was i was happy to watch picnic and hanging rock again <laughs> <laughs> all right well um I don't want to keep you too much longer. I mean, I, I but like I said, um, I loved The Haunting of Elkwood. I think, I mean, I've loved everything you've ever written that I've ever read. This one may be my favorite, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That makes me happy to hear. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think, uh, so this, this episode is coming out, I think, February 23rd. Um, so the book will be very shortly coming out March 5th. So definitely everyone be looking for it. Thank you very much, Gwendolyn, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Are you going to be uh, in San Diego for StokerCon? I am. I definitely am. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Hopeful. I'm hoping to make it out there. Well, I, I haven't quite finalized my plans, but. Uh, yeah. We'll I still have to get airplane tickets. So like. Yeah. Mine are not finalized, but they're finalized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm maybe gonna drive. We'll see. Oh, I haven't I haven't figured it out. But how far of a drive is it? From here, it's it's probably about ten hours. It's okay. It's okay. it's doable from New Mexico. It's not the worst. I've done it before, but we'll okay. See. So, <laughs> uh, well, hopefully, I'll see you out there. Sounds good. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, Thank you very much, Gwendolyn Keist, for coming on the show. Remember to pre-order your copy of The Haunting of Velkwood. That book will be coming out on March 5th. Be sure also to check out the next episode of Nighttime Logic on YouTube. Uh, You can find that by going to uh, Daniel Brahm's YouTube page. You can just search Daniel Brahm on YouTube or go to Daniel Brahm 7838. He'll be featuring author Dan Franklin, and I'll be posting a link to that in the episode show notes. Please go to whatever streaming platform you're using if you're enjoying the show. Go ahead and leave five stars, leave a review. Please go to social media, spread the word, tell your friends, and I will be back with you guys again in a couple of weeks.